0: your your goodness, to behold your holiness, to behold your righteousness, to behold your love with which you've loved us, to just behold you in all of your perfections. We would be most satisfied, Father, when we take the time to stop and consider who you are. And then we consider then from who you are the great love with which you've loved us, the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and then we consider what a great gift it is that you've given to us in the church and the usefulness that it has, Lord, the place it has in the life of the believer to continue to to make much of you and for it to be a place where we would grow to be like Christ as well. So we pray this morning, Father, lead us and guide us as we endeavor to understand and to enjoy this wonderful gift that you've given to us in the church and that we would then um, be grown up into the faith and mature as we should be. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for this time together. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It's good to sing together about our God and to sing to him together. And so we thank all of the musicians and vocalists and everybody who works so hard to help lead us in that way. Starting a new series on the church today. And I've got to be honest, I forgot how hard it is to do expository, topical Preaching. When you're going through a book of the Bible, you just, oh, you already know what your next set of verses is gonna be because it's like the next chunk that comes after the stuff that you just preached on that Sunday. But when you're doing a topic, it's, it's like a systematic study and you're going into the Bible and you're gathering all this data, all this information on any given topic, and then you've gotta organize it in a way that you're praying, Lord, I pray that this is helpful, that it's glorifying to you, That it makes sense to the people, that it really does something and edifying, it builds up the body. And as I was going into the study on the church, you know, I had this nice like five-week sermon series planned out, and everything was neat and tidy in its place. And then I get into studying more in depth this week, and the Lord just like he obliterates the whole plan that I have. And so the plan is still a five. Six, seven ish weeks um, on the series on the church. We'll see how long the Lord has us in this, but I think it's going to be good. I'm encouraged because number one, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding as to what the Bible says about the church, there's a lot of misunderstanding as to what it is that we expect out of the church, the role that the church plays in the life of the believer. And I think this is reflected largely by the casual attitude that most Christians have towards the church. And when we look at Scripture, my hope and my prayer is that in looking at Scripture and what God says about the church, this sermon series is titled The Beloved. Um, You consider who God is, and then you consider that there is something that He loves. There is something that He calls His Beloved. That's incredible. That should stop us and think and go, "Okay, if God calls something his own beloved, there is something that he shows his beloved, his benevolent love and favor and mercy and grace upon, we should really as believers notice that and want to know more about that. And of course it includes the individual Christian, but as we look at what the Bible says about the church, God's never intended for the Christian to be isolated, to be an individual. This whole idea of autonomy and individualism is just, it's not a biblical idea at all when it comes to the life of the believer and their inclusion into the church. Christ died for the church, for his bride, the composition of all believers. And we need to understand our role in that and the good for us in that and um, rejoice in it. And I'm convinced that, I'm convinced of this. There is a biblical truth that God calls us to build our lives around the local church. We would be inclined to build our lives around the local church when when we love the local church. And you'll be inclined to love the local church when you understand how much God loves the local church. And you'll understand how much God loves the local church when you understand how much he loves what we will talk about primarily this morning, the universal church. The the, the church that is composed of all believers from all time um, that have been justified by faith, that believe in, in the work Of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a way in which the scripture talks about the church in that way. The the scripture talks about the church in, in two ways, in the invisible or the universal church that's composed of all believers from all time, and then it also talks about the church in the sense of the local church, like the church in Jerusalem, the church in Ephesus, North Hills Christian Church. And there's a relationship of the local church included into the universal church. But this morning, we want to talk about primarily what the Bible says about the universal church so that in going through the rest of our sermon series, we can see how does the local church play and function. What has God given to the local church in order for the member of the universal church, the invisible church, to truly grow and be like the Lord Jesus Christ? There's things that he gives to us, tools that he gives to the local church to help those who are members of the universal church, the invisible church, grow to be like Christ. And so when we talk about the church this morning, we want to be talking about primarily the believer. Believers that have spanned the history of time that are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ and included in the body of Christ and come under his headship. So we want to talk about the invisible church um, in that way today. Consider Christ as the head of that church and then consider what scripture says about how God really loves the church, his beloved bride, the the universal church as a whole. Um, Charles Spurgeon, I think, does a good job and helpful in reminding us of this. He says, what is the church? The word signifies an assembly. The church of Jesus Christ is an assembly of faithful men, the whole company of God's chosen and called-out ones, the entire community of true followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Wherever true believers are, there is part of the church. Part of the church is in heaven triumphant, part on earth militant. But these differences of place make no division concerning real unity. There is only one church above and below. This is the the, the difference in space between those who have died and gone to be with the Lord and those of us who are still alive here doesn't make a distinction between the church. There is one true church and it's composed of those who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. Flip with me if you will to the book of Matthew chapter 16. We'll begin there this morning. I've really, I think, done what I can to limit our like hopping all over the Bible. I've really tried to do what I can to, to hone in on a couple verses that I think are going to be really helpful and beneficial for us in this way. So Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. Verses 13 through 20 is Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ. And this is really the first place in the Bible where you see this word church. If you're familiar with Greek, the word ekklesia is the word for church in the the Greek New Testament. And this is the first place where we really see that. And it's part of Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ. Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. And Jesus says to him in Matthew 16, 18, I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell cannot prevail, shall not prevail against it. This um, interaction with Peter, he says, you are Peter. You are Petros. You are this stone. You are this boulder. You are this individual rock of a man and upon this rock this petra this this stone edifice this collection of stones and boulders is where i will build my church and he's talking about the universal the invisible church he has identified peter and saying you are one man you are a stone you are a rock but it is upon this el capitan if you will that i am going to build my church this stone Edifice, which you will be a part of, Peter. You will be a rock in this stone edifice that plays its role. But it is not upon you which I will build my universal church, because as we will get into, God has been building his church far, far before Peter ever came around. It's not as if Peter was the first one to confess Christ or to believe in Christ and the first member of the church. God has been building his church ever since the fall took place. And his confession is that you are a stone, but upon this this stone edifice, I'm going to build my church. And he talks about the persevering nature, the victorious and the conquering nature of his church. When he says, not even the gates of hell shall prevail against it. God's universal, his invisible church is unstoppable because God himself is the one who is building it. He is gathering his people as he has always done and will continue to do until the full number of his people are brought in and then the end will come. And nothing can thwart or stop God's plan to redeem his people and to build his church. Isn't that good news? I mean, there's, in a world full of bad news, doesn't it seem like that? Every time you turn on the news, it's bad news. Um, the gospel is good news. It's the place where we can go to be reminded of the good news of what it is that God is doing, what he has done and the power and the impact of the gospel. God is bringing his people in, right? As Colossians 1 says, he's transferring his people from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. That's what he's doing when um, he's building the church and he's saving his people. Who makes up this edifice, this mass of rocks, but those who, through history, who have been faithful worshipers of the triune God. And this is where you can't talk about the church, the, the biblical theme of the church, without talking about the biblical theme of worship. They are intertwined together. They go hand in hand. You can't talk about church without talking about worship. And you can't talk about worship without talking about the church. Because the church, it, the reason why we have a church is because we have worshipers. God is calling sinners out of their sin adopting them into his family, and he converts them into being worshipers of his own nature, of the triune God. What is a church but a, gather, a group of people gathered together, a group of worshipers gathered together to worship him? So we sing songs like, Behold Our God. We're Our musicians and our vocalists are encouraging us and reminding us, come, let's worship together. Let's, with one voice, one heart, one mind, one faith, one baptism, one spirit, worship the one true God collectively, together. And we do that by song, and we do that through preaching, and we do that through communion, and we do that through prayer, and we do that through fellowship, which we'll get into the marks of the local church um, later on in the series. But you can't talk about the church without talking about worship. I did a sermon on the church. It was May, May of this year, and it was titled, The Mission of the Church, Worship. And if you want an idea of more of my thoughts on that, go to that sermon on our website and listen to that from from May of earlier this year, Missions Month in May. So this is a theme where, this is where we talk about the church and worship becoming intertwined. The beloved, his beloved, the church are his worshipers. And this goes all the way back to the beginning. If you want to really think about it, where did the first church ever show itself? Where did it ever occur? But in the garden. God, with God's people, in his place. In the garden, you have, in a sense, a, a church Worshippers with god worshiping god in obedience to him in his place in the garden but all of that changes once sin enters into the world and adam and eve partake of the fruit fail to practice dominion and obedience to god and worshipers are separated from their god banned from the garden from being with the one that they are called to worship and love. The incredible thing really is that the Bible should be over at that point. There shouldn't really be any more story. For God gave mankind what it was that they should do, what was required of them. They knew the stipulations that if they failed, death would incur. And so really our Bible should just be like two or three pages long into story. What's really incredible and what's really amazing about the church and about worship is that it actually continues on through the fallen race of mankind. And this is God's just sheer benevolent grace and mercy upon rebellious sinners. That he would have a people for himself that would worship him. We see after Adam and Eve fall into sin and are separated from God, they have two sons, Cain and Abel. There's this promise, right? That one that that one is going to come from the seed of the woman, and he's going to crush the head of the serpent, and they have two sons. Adam and Eve have two sons, and possibly they're thinking, okay, which one of these two boys is going to be my seed that is going to crush the head of the serpent? And then immediately we run into a problem because one kills the other, and the one that killed the other is then banished. The story doesn't stop there. It continues. You have Abel, who is a worshiper, and you have Cain, who is not. And then Adam and Eve have another son, a third son, Seth. And he is a worshiper of God. And you can see Genesis traces Seth's genealogy all the way down to Noah. Where again we find in um, the book of Genesis the story of Noah. And he's a, a faithful worshiper of God. Keep in mind, worship is still taking place against the backdrop of sin being present within the world. That's the incredible thing. The, the the incredible part of the story is that worship still takes place by God's own sovereign providence and design to, to bring people and make them his worshipers against the backdrop of the wickedness and the heinousness of sin. And the fact that he is still gathering his worshipers, which will be composed, which will compose the church, is absolutely incredible that God would do that. And so against this backdrop of sin, we see Seth, we see Noah, from Noah's son Shem all the way down to the line of Abraham, from Abraham to Moses. And there are others, I know, in between there, but we're pointing out the prominent figures of the Old Testament that were faithful worshipers, not perfect by any means, but worshipers of God. And then from Abraham to Moses, where in Moses and Israel, there are unique and Um, temporary national features to God's called out people of worshipers. Not everybody who was in the nation of Israel was a true worshiper of God. It doesn't take long in reading through the Old Testament to see that just because you are part of the nation of Israel does not mean you're a true worshiper of Jehovah, Yahweh, the triune God. But God always had, if you will, in Israel, within Israel, those who were truly and faithful worshipers who loved him. And we see examples of that in in David and many others who, who were worshipers of God. And we see some of these temporary features within Israel of what um, worship was supposed to look like, and where it was supposed to happen in the tabernacle and within the temple. Where were God's worshipers supposed to go to meet with God and worship God because fellowship was being restored in the church, the invisible church was being, was being built up, but to the tabernacle and to the temple. But then the nation falls into sin. They are exiled completely out of the land. Only the poorest of the poor were still left. But even in that, even while they're in exile, the story of worshipers being gathered continues. I'm reading through Daniel in my own devotional time. If you want to read a book of the Bible that puts the sovereignty of God on display so clear, read the book of Daniel. Right? Where they're in exile. They're in a pagan land. And and books like Daniel and books like Esther are written where worshipers of God are faithful to worship God even while they're in exile because God is, ha, has called them and redeemed them and delivered them and brought them into his family, into his church body. But then they go back into the land, the temple is rebuilt, but there's a problem. The presence of God does not come back to the temple. And Abba, Over time and then a subsequent period of 400 years, there's silence. When is God going to speak again? And after 400 years of silence, God speaks as he comes to us personally in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he tells us in John chapter one, verse 14, that I have come to dwell and I have dwelt among you. I have literally tabernacled among you. He fulfills what the tabernacle was supposed to to serve. And then in John chapter two, he fulfills what the temple stood for. Tear this building down and in three days I will raise it up again as he speaks of his body reminding the people that salvation is found in him and in him alone. Worshippers come to him and worshipers come from him. God speaks incredibly as he, as he doesn't jettison his purpose and his plan to create, to build his church. He's continuing to faithfully build his church the invisible, the universal church of worshipers. But now in the Lord Jesus Christ, it takes on a very different and fulfilling dimension. It's made made very, very clear that if, if you were to be a worshiper, if you were to be a member of this church, you must come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved, Romans chapter 10 tells us. To become a worshiper is to be born again. He has this conversation, right? John 1, I fulfilled the tabernacle. John 2, I fulfill the, uh, t- the temple. And then he has a conversation with a woman at the well. Where do true worshipers gather? Worshippers are those who worship the, the triune God in spirit and in truth. These are the true worshipers gathered in and under the head of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the universal church has always been being gathered together. It's composed of true worshipers, but now it takes on a unique feature in the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn with me, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 1, verses three through six, and it's important to see this, that the church was never God's plan B. You ever think about that? Isn't it? Now that's, for me to say the church was never God's plan B, I'm also not saying, I'm also saying that it was not plan C or D or E or F. It was plan A, always, from the beginning. In passages like Ephesians chapter one, Verses three through six help us see this. How does Paul speak? How does he, what does he write? Ephesians chapter one, beginning in verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. See, salvation is found only in the Lord Jesus Christ, his beloved. Isn't this what he says? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. There becomes, and even though God has always been gathering a people for himself, worshipers for himself, when they are included in the heavenly, the invisible church, there is something unique and distinct that takes place in the Lord Jesus Christ where he is said to be even the head of the church, his body, which we will talk about here in a moment. But you see here in Ephesians that those who are blessed in the beloved are those who have been chosen and elected, predestined by him before the foundation of the world. Before Adam and Eve were ever formed out of the dust of the ground and God ever breathed the breath of life into their nostrils. Before the world was ever created, before the fall ever took place, Worshippers were predestined and elected in the beloved son before the foundation of anything had ever been created. The church has always been, the universal church, the invisible church has always been God's plan. And nothing will stop him from building the church. Nothing will thwart him from accomplishing his plan to gather a people to himself. Worshippers are now found exclusively and solely in the Lord Jesus Christ. You could say even throughout the Old Testament, they were always found exclusively and solely in the Lord Jesus Christ. But at that time in types and shadows, justification by faith has always been the means and the way by which mankind has been saved. It's just now that in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have, we have no further need for God to reveal to us where salvation is found and what it is that he requires of mankind because he came personally and visited us and told us what it was that he requires. And then he went to the cross and fulfilled the demand and the requirement on our behalf. And, he, and what he asks is those that come, come by faith and by faith alone. Not on any merit of yours, not any goodness of yours, but you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, and those who come, come because they have been predestined before the foundation of the world in the beloved. And that's, what, well, and that's really what I want us to take a few moments to consider now, is to consider the way that the New Testament talks about the relationship between the believer, the Christian, the worshiper, and the Lord Jesus Christ. He says that he is our head, Colossians 1.18. He says that he is the head of the church, and we are his body. I read this verse to you last week. Flip over if you need to one page, Ephesians chapter 1. This is part of what Sam read for us this morning, Ephesians chapter 1, 22 and 23. And by the way, do you hear the Lord's blessing upon us with this beautiful ring? Those who know me know that I am like rejoicing on the inside right now. If there's an extra pep in my step, you know why. It's raining. Um, Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. And he put all things under his feet, the his there is Christ. He put all things under Christ's feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. The church they're still being, talking about the invisible body of people, which is his body. And then listen to the way that he describes the body of Christ, the fullness of him who fills all in all. He is the head, and he describes the body as being the fullness of him. I, we, were, we were reading over this passage last night as a family, and I asked uh, the kids, I said, what is the relationship between your head and your body? And Abigail's like, my head's part of my body. And I'm like, exactly. There's a unity there. There's a oneness between the head and the body. And that's the the wording that is used within scripture for us to understand God is communicating to us The oneness, the unity, the cohesion, the intimacy between Christ and the individual worshiper, and Christ and his gathering, his collection of worshipers, his church, that there is a oneness. There is a a distinction. He is the head. He is not us, and we are not him. But there is a oneness, there is a bringing together where he, he leads, we hear the call of Christ our captain. He is our captain because he is our head. But the head is connected to the body and they are meant to function together with a oneness, with a unity, with a cohesion and intimacy. And that helps us understand why He has such a love for the church. I think it's really important to understand this relationship between Christ as our head in order to grasp the depths of which scripture describes the love of God for the body. It is In the Trinity, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, there is, there is no hindrance or roadblock to the fullest and purest expression of love for one another. There is absolutely fullness of love and joy and all that is in God, within God, shared within the Godhead. And by virtue of being in Christ, that love that exists, this pure, unhindered, righteous, holy, magnificent love that's shared within the Godhead is then shared with those who are within the Godhead, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is by virtue of him being our head and we being his body God is communicating to us that though there is a distinction, always a distinction, creator, creation, always a distinction, but the love that, was, that is shared within the triune Godhead is then shared with those who are his, with his worshipers, with his true worshipers, with those who are within the body of Christ. Now that's incredible. When you think about the type of love that God has for you, by virtue of you being within the head, because it is by the head's obedience. It is by the head's faithfulness. It is by His covenant keeping that we are exper- that we get to receive and experience that love. You don't receive and experience the pure, righteous love of God that exists within the trihead, within the triune Godhead by any virtue of your own. Like, it's not because you're good enough. Not because you're smart enough. Not because you're moral enough. The only reason why we receive this inexpressible, undescribable, pure and beautiful love of God is because of the faithful work of the Lord Jesus Christ and us being included in Him. And I'm telling you, grasping the depth of the love of God for you as part of the body as the believer is absolutely essential for you being able to live a life of obedience and love back to him because what's the call for the believer the law and the prophets boil down to two things one thing and then another love the Lord your God with all your heart soul mind and strength Love your neighbor as yourself. The only way you're actually going to be able to, to do that, to love God. I want to love God more and more the older I get, not less. I want to finish strong. Like when scripture says that the outer body is wasting away, but the inner man is being renewed day by day, I really want that to happen to me. As this body gets older and it decays and things begin to fall apart and fall off, I want to inwardly being able to say, I am growing stronger, I am, my love for the Lord is, is increasing and my love for others is increasing as well. As a it's just, that is a natural byproduct. You cannot learn to love the Lord your God more and more and not also love people. I want that to be true of me. And what's essential for me being able to learn to love God more and more is for me to understand and grasp the love of God for me in Christ, by which the Holy Spirit is actually like always exclaiming and proclaiming within the life of the believer. We see this love that he has given to his beloved in, again, later on in Ephesians chapter 5. And I'm going to read, I want us to look at a few verses. What's the type of love, this love that God has always had, this love that God has always expressed to his worshipers from the foundation of the world, after the fall even, that he shows to his worshipers in, in being brought into covenant union with him? What is this love that becomes crystal clear and um, in the Lord Jesus Christ in His work as our head? What is this love that He expresses to the body of the Lord Jesus Christ? all of those who are redeemed by the blood of Christ, those who are part of the true church, those, of, those who are worshipers of Him. And actually, probably one of the best places that we see that in all of Scripture is in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33. And this is usually where you hear sermons on marriage. What's interesting is that we like to use this passage of Scripture to say, the love between you and your wife, that's like the love between Christ and the church, that's like not really good news because if you're married or if, if, you have a, you know, if you've ever been married and you have a spouse, let's be honest, I don't want Jesus' love for me looking like my love for my wife at times because I don't love very well, very consistently, very faithfully. We don't. Human love is not like God's love. It, it, it's, it's, a, it's a picture, but it's a pale one. This, this passage of Scripture is actually meant to communicate first, as we will see. The point is, this is God's love for the church, His bride. Husbands and wives. This is the picture. Grow to model that picture within your own marriages. That's the way it should go, the way it should go. The, the love between Christ and the church is the picture. It's the reality. The love between a husband and wife is just, it's, it's a reflection of that. And that's not the, not the other way around. And so we look at this passage to see how Paul describes God's love for his beloved. We've seen that the church is the fullness of Christ. We've seen that Christ is the head of the church. And we will see that again beginning in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife. And the, Again, our focus is going to be on the language that talks about the love of Christ for the church. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. He's not only the head of the church, but he's the Savior of the church. He's the mediator. He's the reconciler. He saves he actually delivers from the penalty of sin he is your savior and he is your head he is your lord but he actually saves you know he actually saves rebellious and wicked sinners and he actually enjoys to do it is there anybody that's coercing God to save rebellious sinners? Why does he save the lost and the sinful and the wicked? But by his own sovereign decision and goodness and it's an, it, it flows out of his character and his love. And, he, and what he does, he enjoys doing. There's never any regret. God never experiences guilt. Regret. That's incredible. And he saved you. He, he, he calls himself your savior knowing that you weren't even going to be like perfect after he saved you. You weren't perfect when he saved you and he knows you're not going to be perfect and yet he still consistently saves to the uttermost those who are his. It's incredible how faithful he is to save his people to the end. Not only that, but we see in 525, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We see the love of God expressed to to his church and a giving of himself up. How did he save his people? How did he save you? He gave himself up for you. Again, no coercion within the Godhead. Son, you gotta go down and save them. People, I really don't want to. You know they're not good people. I know, but... I love them, so go ahead and go on. Really? Like, that conversation never happened. What the Father and the Son and the Spirit do are always done in in purity and unison and agreement and love and happiness. It's, again, these things within the, the Godhead are, as you contemplate them, are incredible but he gives himself up willingly, voluntarily, even to the point of death, death on the cross, for us, for you. You are in this room this morning with some some level of desire to worship God, to make much of him, because he gave himself up for you and bought you and brought you into his family. If he does not give himself up, if he does not lay his life down, if he does not go to the cross, we are not here today. We are not worshipers. Paul makes that very, very clear in 1 Corinthians 15, that if Christ is not raised from the dead, you are still in your sin, dead in your sin. But because he's laid his life down and he's resurrected, there's life. This is an expression of his love for the church. Verse 27. Not only that, not only does he save us so that he might present him the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. His love continues to express itself not only as our Savior, not only as Him laying His life down for us, but then as Him continuing to purify us, to cleanse us, and to wash us. And this does not take place in general and vague ways. This takes place in very specific ways in in our lives, in ways in which we struggle with anger, in the ways that we struggle with lust, in the ways that we struggle with doubt, in the ways that we struggle with grief. And the ways that we struggle with guilt, where there are sinful tendencies and passions at work in all of these areas, and, more, and many, many more. And he is committed out of an expression of his love by virtue of being our Savior and offering himself up for us to purify us, that he might sanctify, set us apart, Positionally, and then progressively continue to sanctify us, cleansing us by the washing of the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. View sanctification in your life as God's work of beautification to make you look to accomplish his work of splendor. You ever see something you go, oh, splendid, that's splendid. That's what he's doing in the life of the Christian. Without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that he might, that she might be holy and without blemish. This is what he's doing in all the believers. Purifying us so that there's no spot or wrinkle or blemish of any kind. Verse 29, for he, for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Isn't that... That's, nourishes and cherishes. I looked up those words. Nourish means to bring up from childhood. He nourishes and cherishes. Think of the things that you nourish. You nourish your children. You nourish, some of you guys nourish your pets. You nour- some people nourish like their rose bushes, you know, plants and stuff. You're talking about intentional, personal, one-on-one care to make sure that something grows and is healthy and becomes what you foresee it becoming. That's what he does. He nourishes us, and he gives us the nourishment that we need to be healthy and to grow. And you know what he does sometimes in in nourishing us to making sure that we're healthy and growing? He says, no, that is not good. That will not nourish you. And if you're insistent on having that thing, then there will be times where God will say, you may partake in it. And then when you are sick because of what it is you have partaken in and you are not nourished and you return back to him and you say, help me, he will say, I will help you. And then he will begin to nourish you and once again and build you up and strengthen you. But not only nourish, nourish and cherish. Cherish means to soften by heat, to warm by incubation. Isn't that Wonderful. This word picture of God warming his children by virtue of incubation to grow them, to make sure that they're healthy and strong. God nourishes, he feeds us, and he incubates us to a degree. Not forever. You can't stay under the, the hen's wing all your life but he grows us and provides for us what is absolutely necessary so that when you leave the nest, you get out from under the wing, that he's provided. And then he continues to provide for us, nourishing and cherishing us all of our days. And we see that in verse 31 through 32, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church, holding fast to one flesh, becoming one, becoming united, joining of two together. This is what Christ does. He joins himself to us. His love is expressed not only as our Savior, not only as him giving himself up, not only as nourishing and cherishing us, but he unites himself with us. I want to read, before we close here, John 17, um, I, want, I just want to see, I want us to see very quickly again here this language of the union and the intimacy that the believer has with Christ, that the church has with Christ. John seventeen eleven. Let's go John 17, verse, start in verse 20. We'll do 20 through 23. Jesus is praying, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That, and then this is the incredible part. So he's prayed for believers to be one, just as the Father and the Son are one. But then in verse 21, what's amazing is that he connects that unity and that oneness, not only between us, one another, but with himself. That they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me, even as, and love them even as you loved me. We don't have time to unpack all of that, but needless to say, there is an incredible clarity given to us in those verses between the unity between the Father and the Son, the believer and the believer, and the believers and the Father and the Son. There's a oneness, a cohesion, of which he continues to dispense his nourishing and cherishing love upon always. So close with this saying that my goal was at the beginning I said we are called the Bible calls believers to build their lives around the local church we will get into the nuts and bolts of that and I will explain that exegetically in the weeks to come what I want us to grasp is this today you will be inclined to build your life around the local church when you love the local church You will will be more inclined to love the local church when you understand how much God loves the local church. And you will be more inclined to love the local church when you see how much God loves his invisible, his universal church, his bride, of which local churches are just a physical present manifestation. He has a love, which I pray has been made clear, for his bride of which we are a part of. And he calls us to have places to express that love, to perceive that love, to enjoy that love in local gatherings. And we'll get into what the Bible says about the local church in weeks to come. One of the blessings that we get to do as we gather together as a local church is to partake of communion. Communion time is an opportunity for us to fellowship and to eat this meal together. We're gonna be doing, as Dan said, a book study. That book, The Loveliest Place, there are copies of it on the table in the foyer. Um, For right now, one copy for family or or, or couple, or if you're single, grab a copy. And read the book. The book is not divinely inspired, but does a good job of encouraging and pointing out biblical truths as the church is the loveliest place. I really like that title and that idea. Um, and we are, he, he, he calls us to it and invites us to it and we're blessed when we obey him in that way. So I encourage everyone to, to get that and we'll, we'll provide some opportunities to um, talk about that book together in the weeks to come. But fellowship being what's intended through that book, fellowship being what's intended through our time together on Sunday mornings and the fellowship that we have with Christ is what becomes very, very clear when we partake of communion. You, you, we have the elements in the back. This is an opportunity for worshipers to worship. We worship the triune God. As you, as you take, you, you ask yourself the question, how can I, how, how is it that I made a worshiper by the work of Jesus Christ? And that becomes very, very clear to us as reminded of it when we hold the cracker, which represents his bread, and we hold the juice, which represents his shed blood. I am partaking of this, I am eating it, I am tasting it as a, as a clear reminder of my inclusion into the church because of the work of Christ. And that is something that we share together. And so we partake of this meal together as well. So the elements are on the table and you can grab them and return back to your seat and we will partake of these elements in a few moments together.